Thanks for joining us as a listener to our Hidden Kingdom podcast. With each episode, I'll be talking to speakers, poets, songwriters, artists, entrepreneurs, and friends I've made down through the years as a worship leader, hearing their stories and how they communicate in their various spheres of influence. These are conversations to inspire us to think more deeply and more imaginatively about how we use our own gifting to make known facets of the hidden kingdom to the modern world. As a travelling musician, priest and activist, Garth Hewitt's name is synonymous with identifying with the dispossessed by sharing hope and standing against injustice in so many situations around the world. Having released over 40 albums and written numerous books, he continues to share songs of protest and vision of a better way for humanity in the spirit of peace and reconciliation. This conversation provides much food for thought for us to recognise our responsibility to affect change by standing with the marginalised and often forgotten through our music and creativity. So it really is great to have Garth uh, Hewitt here with me this morning and um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation because you have travelled a very long road, Garth. <laughs> I have. <laughs> a little slower over lockdown. but <laughs> <laughs> when, when did you start recording? In 72, I recorded my first album. It was released in 73. Wow. Yeah. And that, that one was called The Lion and the Lamb, and we did it at Air London Studios, which was um, really eye-opening to me <laughs> kind of first time in the studio doing an album yes yes yeah. and that would have been very embryonic days of the sort of contemporary music scene in in this country i mean you were one of the real beginners the, the real pioneers and your life has kind of taken an interesting direction because you've not just followed the the trend you're a priest uh you love a bit of poetry um, but you're an activist, and you, you combine all those those things together, which I think is really um, a sign of a, a creative a creative life. So was that something that was born in you right at the beginning? I mean, did you always think, oh, "I want to be all those things"? No, I, and I think the journey to discovering, like probably like most people, discovering exactly what you should be takes a bit of time, mm. and. Um, I think there was a very significant moment when I was 16 or 17, when I went up to London to St. Paul's Cathedral to hear Martin Luther King speak. Mm. And he was on his way to pick up the Nobel Peace Prize. And I asked all my friends, you know, he, Martin Luther King's coming, but no one wanted to come with me. But I went up on my own. And this sermon he gave was a very rounded one. And, and I, for me, at that stage, I came from a Christian home, but the it what was I going to walk that road, and and what was um, the aspect of Christianity that would capture me? And I found that when as he picked up the social justice issues and interwove mm. them with those other aspects, I thought, ah, this is a complete circle. There's something very whole about this mm. now, and I would like to sort of live out that way, but of course. 
It took me quite a few years to work out exactly what that might mean and what it might look like and um, how it might come into songs and all sorts of things. Yeah. And, you know, people see Martin Luther King as an activist, but he actually was a very spiritual man. He surrounded himself. I mean, I've been reading up on um, Howard Thurman, a yeah. uh, great influence, a great a spiritual spiritual man. So he, he was drawing from that wellspring with the things that he, he spoke. Uh, you actually met him, didn't you? Or had some... I heard him. I... Um, I didn't talk to him. He was preaching in St. Paul's, but I hung around afterwards and uh, he came out of the deanery and he was there with all those other people um, that like Jesse Jackson and um, Andrew Young and so on. They were kind of messing around. It was, um, yeah. it must have been an exciting time for them. And this little young teenager was standing there just watching them. Yeah. And it was like, I suppose I was trying, I was gleaning something from these people. Yeah. who I've seen on the television going down on their knees on Selma Bridge. Yeah. And um, I thought, how do you do that with dogs and hoses and, you know, brutality going yeah. on? And uh, that had, had therefore a very, very big impact on me. Yeah. And you began to play the guitar you, and, and develop in, in your rootsy style, which I, I love. I think we have similar interests when it comes to musical styles. Um, mm. And you in, interpreted your, your music into was it initially a christian faith Did, were you writing about or was it um just songs yeah. were your early songs they were the early song i mean i was up at when i was up at university i was started singing in folk clubs and so on and mm. so i was singing a variety of material um when it came to recording though um it was a christian label that asked me to do the album and so obviously I, those were the songs that I, yeah. that I picked. Yeah. Um, but even in gigs at that time, I would include a range of other stuff um, yeah. because you sort of did. You, you, you were entertaining people and um, you didn't quite know that you could do the whole evening maybe of spiritual mm. material. So mm -hmm. there was a little bit of a mix, yeah. um, which was, yeah. I think it was fine at that time and quite enjoyable. Yeah, and it's great to have those influences. I mean, I know John Prine is a great uh, musical hero of yours, but Joan Baez and uh, yeah. Dylan, yeah. I'm sure, is in there. He's in there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's still making albums. There's, we could still keep going, Goth. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> gives us hope, doesn't it? It does give us hope. And, and the nice thing was um, that these people, I mean, I went to hear... Joan Baez, I think it was last year, hmm. and um, I thought, my goodness, she's not just singing. She's singing. She's relevant. It's powerful. Um, she's her activist side is coming out. Uh, just great. Uh, and then there was another artist. It seemed to be one or two artists that went through the um, uh, De La War Pavilion mm -hmm. in uh, Bexhill, which is not far from where we are. And uh, Tom Paxton came along. Oh wow! And he's the same. So yeah. there's, and I in fact I recorded one of his songs on my latest album, "Whose mm. Garden Was This?" Because I thought you would think this song about climate change and so on mm. was written a few months ago, and it, it was written in 1970. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the relevance yeah. of some of these folk has been very important. Exactly. I, I mean, Joni Mitchell with "Big Yellow Taxi." There we are. You know, great song about environment right now. Right. Yeah. Um. So. 
what I, I like about what you do, you, you kind of develop this troubadour uh, mm. musical style, which involves travel. Of course, it's, it, it, I say developed, but it's an old style, isn't it? I mean, uh, we go way, way back to the early years of the Christian faith. Is it Caderman? Uh, yes. Who, yes. with his harp, would go around? Yeah, yeah. And then the medieval times, the musician would travel with news, good news, telling stories through his music. And you've kind of developed that as as the years have, uh, have gone by. I come from more of the sort of, as I say, new church, charismatic side of things. You've more the more Anglican uh, side that, that you've come from but the same kind of vision really to to make music accessible to the people although you've met very many significant important people perhaps we'll talk about that as things go on and i think music crosses over bridges doesn't it in in wonderful ways and uh the story type messages of your songs um really grab people and they've got choruses as well to them haven't they that people can sing yes. along yeah, I, I kind of like that because um, it is a funny thing in a way because with your songs, you're, you're writing in a context of, of worship. Often, mm. therefore, you want the chorus and the verse to be something people sing. Yeah. But like I'm telling the story and in the verses and then in the chorus, you're wanting yeah. people to kind of join and affirm the song and enjoy the song. Yeah. And so involvement is a part of the concerts. Yeah, uh, the response. Know, yeah. Exactly. The, the audience is responding. That encourages you. And and to be honest, I've missed that this year. That you were, yeah. This is it. I mean, we do our Zoom things and all the rest, but it's not the same. You don't get the body language. You can't see what's happening in the room and you can't read what's happening in the room because I'm sure you're a bit like me. The songs that you sing relate to the, the people who are gathered. You know, you don't just have your set list and that's it. No. Uh, I always have a set list and deviate. Mm, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> because that's you it. get, oh, they, I, we, we also put this one in now. So you read the room, don't you? You, you read the room and the body language and yeah, yeah. Uh, and so on and so forth. So, 1973, you started making records, and this was the development of the sort of contemporary Christian music scene. Worship wasn't really too much i mean worship was on the agenda but worship songs weren't the popular thing of the time it was more the performance type song well, um yeah. and i mean as things have progressed do you feel we've lost something of the performance element of of, of music in our church uh, yeah. music uh, that, that's interesting that i i really do actually because mm. um not that there was a you know, worship came in um, and was being picked up. And sometimes people um, who had been singing, you know, doing more like a concert like I was, someone like Graham Kendrick was, mm. you know, singing folky songs, writing stuff in um, a variety of material. And then he picked up, obviously, on the worship scene and, and did very well with that. Um, what I felt happened was the record companies went for that but they kind of dropped the storytellers. Mm -hmm. And um, the storytelling, I think, is a creative format and can sit alongside the other stuff. It's um, mm -hmm. something that I think we miss a bit. And 
sometimes I hope that through the storytelling, one can have a prophetic aspect as well, mm. which can challenge the church, motivate the church. And, um, or you may be playing in a, a non-church context where that's very relevant. Mm. Uh, you're opening people up to aspects of what is going on and hopefully spiritual values and so on. Mm. So I'm sorry that hasn't been picked up on a bit more. Um, but who knows, maybe times will change a bit. Yeah, but it's the prophetic element that I think is is very powerful. I mean, we had uh, on on the Hidden Kingdom podcast series a friend of mine, uh, Wayne Drain, who many would call a prophet. I, I I certainly would, but he he um, you know, his thing is is more hearing from God for individuals and and uh, giving them. He's one of those people with that knack, whether you call it prophetic or what, but he can hear from God and give a word in season very often that people find encouraging. And of course, we all know prophecy needs to be weighed, uh, but um, people can find that encouraging. But you, when you, you're doing your music, you're doing a prophecy from a different standpoint. You're prophesying, speaking, pointing the way towards a better way uh, for individuals yes but communities aren't you you're highlighting uh, needs yes and hopefully um pointing to the way um it may be the hebrew prophets it might be um, the words of jesus but trying to show um in the context of things that are happening in our world the, the values um of the community of God, but also that Christianity is not so much just a personal thing, but it's also this community uh, that should be challenging and being prophetic mm. to the world. And I think there's um, moments when we need to raise issues that are perhaps not being raised, even in the popular press or whatever, um, and uh, put a spotlight on it. To, to show people, well, we need to be committed to justice, to peacemaking, mm. and that's all part of, of this journey. Mm -hmm. You know, just picking up 1973, you're moving through into this sort of Christian, this Christian movement of, of musicians is, is developing. Greenbelt, I don't know when that started, but you've certainly been very significant, haven't you, in the, uh, in, in the whole uh, vision of Greenbelt. Um, for many, many years you were associated yeah. uh, in a leadership level. Um, what was the sort of vision behind Greenbelt as it began to develop? Well, it's very interesting. I think it began in 74. Mm -hmm. uh, might have been 73, but I think it was 74. I sang at the first one. I, I've been at them all, funnily enough. Um, <laughs> But then after the first one, it actually was asking itself the question, what is this event? Mm. What's the nature of it? <clears throat> and um, we, the group of people who got together had a, a bit of a different vision, which reflected a commitment to arts, creativity, justice issues, and so on. And um, we formed a committee, and then Greenbelt began to evolve through the years to pick up mm. all of those issues. And I think mm. it became a broader, a more interesting event because it did that. Mm. Mm. And it was a great uh, opportunity for new bands to showcase things. Yeah. And yeah. You, you you had the, the, the sort of main stage, but also other stages where people could develop their, their skills. And 
how many years has it been going now? I mean, 70, early 70s, as you say, 74. My goodness, yeah. that's a long, long time. It, it, it's a long time, and, and mm. it has evolved and changed, and I think that's good. Um, mm. Sometimes, you know, perhaps people miss some aspect of the earlier days. Yeah, uh, yeah. But nevertheless, I, I think if it's going to survive, it has to mm. uh, keep changing, keep aware of what's happening in our world, and certain strands of commitment to justice and creativity and so on and spirituality keep going through. And that, I believe, is, is very encouraging. Yeah. And then you began to sort of dip your toe into the, the mainstream world. I mean, you got, it's Cliff Richard you got associated with, and that took you a little bit outside of the, the Christian ghetto into a, a wider sphere how how was that developing in you know moving into that arena from a christian background how how did you find that um fun well it was <laughs> yes <laughs> there was a lot uh, there was a lot of fun in it I, um there was a lot of things i learned through being in recording studios um cliff uh produced an album for me and various singles and we even recorded in Abbey Road at one point you mm -hmm. know it was great to be in context like that and learning things um the my record label uh, I was with a part of EMI and it was a little bit worried about the words of my song yeah. because um I felt some of them were um either too Christian or perhaps a little political and that wasn't quite what they wanted and I did adapt I mean I, I remember rewriting the lyrics of one song yeah. um, but I learned a lot I was I toured um, with Cliff as well I learned a lot from that mm. it was a, a tremendous opportunity but I also realized that I had a vocation mm. which I needed to not lose and I um I'd been ordained as a, as a priest. I recognized that my music and my songwriting was part of the vocation and also the, the time with Martin Luther King, uh, when I heard him, reminded me that there should be social justice and storytelling mm. what I was doing. And I got invited to go to different parts of the world, sometimes by... Um, churches there, sometimes by relief and development agencies, to see some of the situations in different parts of the world, situations of poverty, civil war, um, and I'd come back and, and write about them. Mm. And, but of course they also uh, shook me. I hadn't seen such a level of poverty, and um, I felt now it was time that those songs that perhaps hadn't being wanted so much on the pop label ought to start becoming a part of um, what I was doing. Uh, it took me a, a few years. I came back then to a, a Christian label and I've got to be thankful to the Christian label. It was Word. They never tried to stop me saying what I felt I should say in the songs. Mm. They had people asking if they would stop me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But... Yeah. Um, they they stuck by me, and and I thought, oh, well, this is great because I'd had that before. That slightly tricky thing of I've got to make sure it doesn't quite say something too clearly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, they and 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 it it kind of developed therefore, um, 
I got invited to more situations around the world because of the nature of what I was doing. Again, yes. it would maybe relief and development agencies or churches, um, campaigning groups became very, very interesting, very moving. Yes. And I was grateful. Yeah. And this is something, you know, we really want to look at because um, this is such a major part of your work over the years. Can you remember the first time you went uh, overseas uh, on outside of Europe to, to, to one of these places? What, what was the impact? What, can you think of a story to tell us how, how you it moved? Yes, yeah, very strongly moved. I went to Haiti mm -hmm. as the first country that I went to outside Europe. And I went with uh, Tear Fund invited me. Uh, George Hoffman, who was the director at that time. And I um, was stunned by what I saw, not because I didn't think I'd see poverty. It was the quantity of it mm. and recognizing that everyone in that context was living in a situation that um, I hadn't realized the, the level of poverty and so on. Mm. And so as I watched people, I, I was doing a concert about the first or second night and people were um, coming along to, to hear this guy that had come from abroad who was going to sing in the local church. And I thought, this is, this is extraordinary. And to hear what they had to say so that I go back and I'm reflecting um, what what they were saying, how they were living, and what I felt was the challenge to the Christian community mm. from uh, from that visit to Haiti. Extraordinary place, uh, um, first country to get rid of um, the slave trade. They got rid of the um, empire um, and fought for freedom. The slaves had an uprising, so it had really interesting history, yes. very relevant, I think, yes. um, yeah. to what's going on today. Yeah. I mean, I know from my own experience, there have been situations where you find yourself in and you think, this is where I'm meant to be right now. This is, this is where I'm meant to be. This is what I'm fulfilling, what I'm called to do. You talked that we use the word vocation. And I guess it's different for each one of us, but w w that was that was one of those moments. Would you say you know it pointed you towards what your future would be? Definitely. Mm. Um, uh, there are certain things after you've seen them, or after you've had that encounter, you're not quite the same. You're carrying that with you, mm. and because I'm looking at it from a Christian perspective, I'm recognizing I need to. Um, reflect what I've learned from this. And then you recognize the Bible is speaking so much about, you know, let, let justice roll on like a river, which was, um, it is from the book of Amos, and it was some words that Martin Luther King used to use a lot. Justice that rolled down like a river and right living like an ever-flowing stream. And that became more dominant in my thinking and uh, in fact, I was the former um, a charity a few years later called the Amos Trust based around those words. Mm. Um, 
And I realized that, uh, and to help me do the storytelling, basically, was why the charity was set up. Mm. And I found that taking some of these issues and talking about them in the church community, um, it was very easy to find parts of the Bible that would uh, uh, reflect the call to be committed mm. Mm. to the poor, to the needy, to justice, and so on. Yeah. It feels like your commitment is to very much to not just a concept, but to individuals as well. I, I think when I look at the Amos Trust, uh, their work, um, I see that it's it's relational. It's not just coming into a to an area and, and doing something, but it's building bridges with, with, with individuals, which I really warm to because I know I feel relationship is so much at the heart of God, you know, relationship with himself, but relationship one with another. And you have not just visited places as a one-off situation, but you've, you've, you've built relationships over time, haven't you, ongoing? Very much so. And, and I think, actually, you put your finger on something very important with Amos. Relationships, friendships, um, and recognition that we're there to learn. Because you know, it's easy to go in and we come from this privileged kind of background in inverted commas, mm. uh, but we, we go in and, and you can dominate. Mm. Charities can dominate. And yeah. um, to me, we have to go in and listen, talk with the community, um, and then respond to how mm. they see how our involvement should be. One of the places that's really been good for us on this is Nicaragua, mm -hmm. where we work with an organization called SAPAD. They're our partners. And they, their example is exactly of that nature. What I mean is they go into a local community. They don't tell the community what they want. They sit and talk with them all and uh, facilitate, really. Mm. And then try to respond to what that community is doing. And, and mm. we felt, well, you're, you're teaching us something here. That's what we want to be mm. a part of that. And, mm. and through the years, um, that relationship has grown. Mm. Mm. I um, love the work you did with the Dalek community. Uh, I remember you went over there and did an album with Paul Field. How was that doing... Uh, traveling with another yeah. songwriter um, in a different style, perhaps a little bit more, uh, yeah, folky, but poppy, a little bit more poppy. Um, how, how did you find that? Did you write the songs together or did you write them individually? What, what happened? Well, gratitude for Paul coming on that trip. And um, mm. we went back and then launched the album in India, um, which was really interesting. Mm. And... I just found um, Paul was very good to work with and um, I was very glad. I'm very fond of the Dalit drum album. And as a matter of fact, I hadn't been doing so much music around that time. I was mm. Christian Aid as head of the London and Southeast team. So I mm. wasn't doing quite so many gigs and so on. After I'd done that album, I thought, hmm, Let's do another album. <laughs> <laughs> you got the bug again. Did yes. you did you take a, f a photographer with you as well? Am I right in thinking that? Because there's some outstanding photographs. Yeah, we must have done. And I um, think we. 
Yeah, there was a photographer with us, and I can't remember whether we that was someone we picked up there or who came with. I think, oh, I think he came with us. I think he was Christian, one of Christian Aid's sort of staff team. Yeah, because I think sometimes it's it's being crossing over to different influences, uh, different disciplines. The the photography seemed to work so well with the music, and I know you've got a great appreciation for poetry. Yeah, um, and you write. You write meditations, you write poems, uh, which I think is, is is wonderful to to see, and all part of the storytelling side of side of Garth. The collaboration. I know you've written uh, a song um, in response to a painting. Yes, um, and I think it's this idea of a, a musical artist not being just boxed up into writing a three and a half minute song that we hope we'll catch on for other people to listen to, whether it be a worship song, whether it be a protest song, whatever, it, whether it be a pop song. It's, it's being expanded in her horizons and letting other senses be touched and experiencing God and sharing God in different ways. So collaboration is, is, is a very good thing, I think, isn't it, Garth? Yes, I, I really think so. And um, I've, I've always liked... <clears throat> The impact of art, and I think it goes well um, with. I've sometimes put it on the cover of an album, and, and that's why I was kind of disappointed when, once we were down to CD size and not the twelve-inch. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. But, um, and one, not so long back, uh, last year, I was over at Banksy's Hotel in Bethlehem, mm. and he has an art gallery for Palestinian artists upstairs and I went up and had a look at it it devastating and powerful paintings but one of them stunned me completely mm -hmm. and it was by one of the top Palestinian paintings a man called Suleiman Mansour and it's a desert and there's a woman carrying a high stick on and on the top of it is the Palestinian mm -hmm. flag Mm. And I thought, this is a voice crying in the wilderness. This, there's a something here, a song. Mm. So I came downstairs and um, Jill said it. You were just in this sort of state of... Um, Jill was sitting there and, and Wissam, who um, is the manager of the hotel, I said to him, I this painting of, of Suleiman Mansour, I, I need to... Um, I want to write a song around it, but I want to use it. And I straight away thought of it this 12-inch single as well. And he said, okay, I'll phone him. And he, there and then, he had his number, obviously, on the phone. Yeah. He talks for a moment in Arabic and said, that's all right, that's sorted out. <laughs> and so, <laughs> Suddenly, yeah. I wrote to Palestinian friends and said, in a song of this nature, and with a painting of this nature, what mm. are the words you would like to see? And I actually thought I might get some almost poems back. Yeah, it wasn't quite. They they talked more. They didn't talk so much in a poetic way, yeah. uh, but they were words that influenced what I wrote. Mm. So I felt that the song was expressing something which was the Palestinian voice, and put it together with this painting. And when we put it on um, YouTube, it got picked up in extraordinary ways. Not just what we'd put on, but then someone did a sort of film around it, a magazine, and in the end, it was like. I think it was something like one and a half million. Oh my goodness. Hits. It was just yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. And they were sending through comments to me. And um, 
deeply moving. People in, in Gaza saying, you know, like one guy, they, um, my little son is so frightened with all the bombing, um, but we've learned the words of your song and, and we're singing that together and it seems to be taking away his fear. Mm -hmm. So moving, so moving. Yeah. Um, and I think the power, we launched it in Banksy's hotel a year later mm -hmm. and um, the artist came along, Suleiman Mansour, a most wonderful man. It was very special. Wow. And um, yeah, it was incredible. And yeah. I just said to him at the end of the evening, what, when you painted it, what, what were you thinking? You know, because I thought, yeah. have I taken a totally different theme or something? And he said, very much what you've said in the poem. Uh, and I, I felt very pleased about that because mm. I thought, well, good. We together, we both expressed something, mm. Mm. and um, I was, and I like the fact, you know, someone who's like a top artist like that um, mm. to be have the privilege of um, putting a song to one of their paintings. It, it was a wonderful moment. That uh, is fantastic, yeah. And it came out on vinyl, didn't it? Yes, <laughs> yeah. we got there. We got there again. You got there. Money. You got round again. <laughs> very good. So the uh, Holy Land is a, is a region that you have really poured yourself into over the last few years, well, quite a few years, actually. Um, how did that develop for you? Um, how did you first come into contact with Bethlehem, Gaza, many of those regions that people would know from biblical and news? Mm. I first... Um had my viewpoint challenged. I was in Uganda and sitting in the house of the Bishop of uh, Kampala, of, of Namarembe, um, a friend of mine called Mazari Kauma. And in his study, I read a magazine and it was talking about the Palestinians. And it was talking about them in a way I had never heard. Mm. And I thought, this is extraordinary. I. I literally have not um, thought about the Palestinians um, and I don't know anything about them. So I began to get books and, and read and find out. And I wrote a book, a song, Where is the Land of Palestine? and began singing it at events. And I would get quite strong reaction from people. <clears throat> and um, then somebody came up to me and said, um, I'm with the Church Mission Society, and we've worked over in Palestine and Israel for more than 100 years, and we'd like to take you over there so you can see things mm. firsthand. And I was, I was thrilled to get that opportunity. I'd never been there. And um, that took me into an awareness and understanding, which... I, I was really shaken by what I saw. I still am every every time I go. And then I, I started singing songs uh, about it much more openly. And I got some criticism. I even, at one big Christian event, people leapt up and grabbed the microphone off oh, me. Dear. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, it was uh, oh, it was quite awkward and embarrassing. But um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the in the end. I remember 
Jim Wallace of the Sojourners community in America, he said to me, if you pick up this theme, this is where you'll really come under attack. This is on a spiritual level because um, this one really upsets people. And I somehow that was kind of put the, um, I recognized, okay, this is the vocation and therefore we carry on and see how it goes. How do you respond? I mean, some people, uh, even listening now, would, would think, well, you know, the Jews are God's chosen people and um, that is their land and so on. How do, how do you respond to, to, that, to that viewpoint? A little phrase at the beginning about, of the Bible about being made in the image of God is one which is about equality. And it's interesting that the most significant um, Jewish-Israeli human rights group is called Betzalem, and it means in the image, in the image of God. Uh, and it recognizes it's equality we have to work for. So I think you have to be, I, I say this, we're all chosen or none are chosen. It's as simple as that. Otherwise you've got a cruel God and a biased God. And the Palestinians have been there for centuries and so on. Let's not try to say, well, God has decided, but rather God is the God of equality. <clears throat> God is saying, come on, I love Palestinians and Israelis the same. So why are you treating them with this apartheid at the moment? Why are you ethnically cleansing East Jerusalem? A God of justice says no to that. Mm. And I think that Christians need to roll up their sleeves and recognize, look, we can be supporters of both communities. But the way you do that is not by hiding the truth of what's going on. It's by staying with them, sharing the truth. Um, the Palestinians, I've, I've got a book I'm just reading at the moment. It's called The Hundred Year War Against the Palestinians. They've been through it and they're going through it right now. And this is the chance. The Christian Church of Palestine has written such a moving um, article called A Cry for Hope and a special Christmas alert that they've put out. And our churches can be part of taking that, sharing it, and helping this commitment to justice for the Palestinian community. And of course, if that happens, it means there's also um, peace and security for the Jewish, Jewish community as well. Mm. But without giving that justice for the Palestinians, that's not going to be um, a satisfactory situation for the Jewish community either. And so if we really want to be peacemakers, uh, we need to make sure that we don't use religion to oppress, but we use it to liberate. And I think that's the nature of God right from the beginning. Equality, liberation. This is a wonderful gospel of hope. But when we start saying that only those are chosen, only those, yes. then we're in trouble. Yes. And it's important to emphasize that yours is a mission of peace, isn't it? And you have yeah. many friends uh, from Israel, Jews, and, and uh, so you're working with, with both communities. Yes. Um, I've, I've much more Jewish friends now <laughs> since getting involved in all of this. And um, it's, um, you know, some of my um, people I admire most are people like Jeff Halper, who's a, uh, he's, um, a Jewish 
he set up the Israeli Committee for Home Demolitions, against home de demolitions. He's a remarkable man who speaks up and uh, he's an activist and an academic. Mm. And it's the example of people like that that give me great hope. And I think often um, we need to listen to those sort of witnesses to mm. what's going on. Um, and we're enriched by that. And also, you know, we think we go on these Holy Land trips, but don't even get to meet with the Palestinian community. And there's a lot of these trips are from churches. We don't even meet with the Palestinian Christians. Mm. It's just sort of, it's extraordinary. Um, mm. We need to to go, listen, but then take a stand, speak up, mm. uh, do justice. Mm. I mean, you're like a stick of rock. There's justice running right through in everything you do, Garth, and mm. we applaud you for that and the what a gift to the the global church well the world around i mean uh garth's music has stood the test of time and you certainly have you're still continuing on building bridges through your music and we thank you for that i talked about you know the fact that you write poetry and um meditations i wonder as we're coming to the end of our uh enlightening conversation uh, garth would you would you share perhaps a, a meditation to to close on and just before that I thank you for joining with us and uh, we so appreciated uh hearing from you um a prophet you know singing speaking out into the world wonderful garth would you just share a it's it's great to be with you and i'm uh thank you for all you've done i appreciate it <laughs> This, this one is a meditation. I think I write this, wrote this in the early part of the lockdown. And um, it's called, You Have Not Done With Us Yet. God of darkness, as well as God of light, wounded God, yet healing God. When we stumble on the journey and see no hope, may we take time to walk away from what distracts us. Take time to pause and be silent. You were not there in the earthquake, nor in the wind, nor in the fire, but in the sheer silence. It's there we meet you again. May we go to the silence to restore our equilibrium, to gain the strength to cast our net again, as we realize you have not done with us yet. There is still hope. Garth, that's brilliant. Thank you.